The journey from Detroit to the jungles of Malaysia is so dramatic that all you can do is hold on tight and resolve to enjoy the ride. Your decision to embrace new things is fortunate because everything around you is new. But at the same time, it doesn't stop you from introducing things from your culture that are new to others. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. And so one day I got up the courage to order hot tea, which is all I wanted. I just wanted some hot tea. The words for spicy and hot are panas and padas. And I basically mixed them up. And the whole room burst into laughter. They thought it was the most hilarious thing ever. Oh, I, they like, oh, you want spicy tea? You want spicy tea, not hot tea? And I said, no, I want the hot tea, but I'm so confused. It's so confusing and it's just too much. And, but that broke all the ice. So Padas and Panas are my, are the two words that stuck with me the entire trip. And now I'm very good. And I know about asking for something spicy and something that is hot. <laughs> So it worked out. <laughs> this week, embracing the unknown. Most likely to run off to Southeast Asia to manage a boy band and finding the grandparents you didn't know you had. Join us on a journey from Michigan to Malaysia to Indonesia to reconfirm that sometimes it can be a jungle out there. It's 2233. <laughs> We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. Oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. My name is Cheyenne Voice. I am originally from Detroit, Michigan. I am currently a senior program officer at the Confucius Institute U.S. Center. It's a small nonprofit that promotes mutual understanding between China and the U.S. Um, and I was a Fulbright English teaching assistant in Malaysia in 2015. And then I was a critical language scholarship recipient um, in Indonesia in 2017. <laughs> city girl. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into when I came to Malaysia. And so I it was during orientation and they told us that we were going to go jungle trekking. So I have like, you know, nice safari shorts and I put on like a nice shirt and I'm not a fashionista, but, you know, I try to be fashionable. And I said, OK, I'm going, you know, I have my trekking outfit. <laughs> this is, you know, what I'm supposed to trek in. And I come downstairs to the hotel. Everybody has on like, you know, kind of T-shirts and, and gym shoes. And I said, oh, is this what you're supposed to wear to like jungle trek? I thought we were just going to look at the jungle. Like, are we going to go be in the jungle? And this is in Kuala Lumpur. So I hadn't even gotten out to my, you know, placement yet where I really saw what the jungle looked like. So I said, okay, 
<laughs> I got to the jungle and we start to like sort of trek and there's this man telling us about uh, the wild boar that live in the jungle and all of these things about the trees. And I, this was sort of the first week and I really wasn't acclimating to life in, you know, a rural environment in sort of Southeast Asia, the bugs, the heat, the everything. I was sort of still adjusting to that. I, they, we, they made us walk through like a river and now my shoes are all wet. And I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do now? My shoes are wet. And there was another guy in my cohort. Um, he's from New York. He said that the furthest he's ever trekked is down the street to get bagels in, in New York City. So why are we trekking in the jungle? And we were both kind of not really into this experience. We, we kept, I said, I kept going though. I said, what can I do? I'm out here. We kept going. And finally we got, we, it opened up to this waterfall. The most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. Again, being from the city, even living in Michigan, I didn't necessarily go out to do like the nature activities when I was younger. And it was just the most amazing thing that I could, I have ever seen. And I, we, all of a sudden now I like jumped in the water and I'm excited. Everything is great. And it was in that moment that I realized that I don't know what this experience is going to be, but we're going to ride this train and see where we go. And it's going to be great. It's always going to be worth it and amazing and mind-blowing and life-changing in the end. And so I think realizing that then made, put me in a mindset that was sort of, when I got to my school and I got to my placement, it was, I don't know what is going to happen. This is completely unpredictable. Never in a million years would I think that this is what I'm doing or this is what I have the opportunity to do or that I can have an impact on, you know, students. And I have people who want me to, you know, sort of be a mentor and who are asking me questions about life and college. And I have students who never thought, never thought that they could let alone pass English, first of all, but then also like to apply for higher education programs or potentially think about applying to go to school or study in the United States or other places in the world. And so I never thought that that would be the situation, but I embraced that opportunity and I realized that this is a one-time thing. I, I don't know when this will ever happen again. I hope that it does. I hope because I, this is, I've sort of built a career and a life around this now. But just knowing that this opportunity is, I have been placed here and these students have been placed here all for a reason. And so I need to embrace it and do what I can with it while I can, because I don't know what'll happen, but it's going to be great in the end. I had done a lot of volunteer work, but I by no means considered myself a teacher. I I enjoyed working with kids and I thought, hey, Malaysia, don't know much about Malaysia. I should go there and see, you know, what's going on. And so I went and I ended up being placed in um, Sikkada, which is in the rice paddies, basically, of rural Malaysia. And so I am a city girl through and through, you know, from Detroit. I went to school in Atlanta, moved to Washington, D.C., just because I love the hustle and bustle of city life. And so to see a city girl put in the middle of the rice paddies in the jungle of Malaysia is sort of like, oh, if my family could see me now, <laughs> they would not believe it. You had to go up 
a dirt road and sort of through, you know, some some jungle to get there. And I remember there were monkeys that lived above the house and there were chickens that, you know, sort of lived on the front porch. And there were cats that would just appear and all of these things. But the the house was surrounded by mountains, beautiful mountains. And you, I could look out and just I just would sit there for hours just looking out at the mountains. And that's something I could have never imagined myself doing because I, you know, move fast. I do fast. Things have to get done. And so to be in that space where life is just simpler was was something that I didn't even realize that I would cherish. So... That was be that was my, my the context of where I was, and so that also meant that the students that I was working with, I was in a um, a secondary school, so I worked with students ages 13 to 17, 17, 18, and I saw about 300 students a week, and the school had about. Uh, we, we had about 900, almost 1,000 uh, students. So it was a pretty large school. But by Malaysian standards, it was considered a lower achieving school. And so they place ETAs in places where they feel like, you know, the students will really benefit and you'll have an opportunity to, you know, work with students learning English who wouldn't, you know, be encouraged to learn English otherwise ne- necessarily. So I had a great English teaching staff um, at my school. I was very lucky. They supported me in all of my sort of crazy ideas about you know, how to make English more exciting and more fun. And that was my job, to come in and be super exciting and really happy all the time and make it seem like learning English is actually really, really exciting. And it's something that we can have fun doing. So I started a boy band in Malaysia. <laughs> I actually um, became, I won the the paper plate award among my cohort for most likely to run off and manage boy bands in Southeast Asia <laughs> in my future life. Um, because, you know, sort of the first couple months in, you know, you're getting acclimated and sort of getting to know the students and you realize the ones that are sort of really excited about you being there and are sort of on this journey with you wherever you want to go. And then, of course, I had Shire students who, you know, just getting them to come up and have a two-second conversation with me was a success by the end of the year. Hearing just a couple students finally just say hi instead of running up to me and, like, then running away (laughs) was actually very exciting. But I had my boy band students. They were 12, 13-year-old young boys. The thing was, it was learning English. You are learning how to sing these songs in English. And so, therefore, that makes this a lesson. And therefore, this is right in line with the mission that I'm, you know, here to achieve. And so, they learned They learned the songs. And we, they went through. They suggested songs. And then we looked at some songs. And then we told them, okay, so you guys are going to have to practice. And so, we used to practice, I think, every day at lunchtime. And then a couple days after school, they would come and do, come and practice. And And so they eventually said, well, what are we practicing for? I was like, okay, we're going to have a performance. (laughs) So 
let's figure out how to have a performance. And so the school had morning assembly every day. So we set a time, we said we set a date, we said, okay, you're gonna we're gonna prepare for this performance. And the other teacher and I, um, she was pretty musically inclined. I'm musically inclined, so I play cello. Um, and I didn't have an opportunity to play in Malaysia, so this was great for me. I said, I'm gonna get this music, you know, thing going somehow, some way. And they were so dedicated. They really thought they were in a boy band. Like they they became the school's boy band, and we taught them choreography. And they ended up singing um, a Westlife song, which is you know older boy band, maybe from like the '80s or something. And then I had another group of boys, a group of like form four boys. So they're like 16. They said, well, we want to have a boy band too. So next thing you know, now I'm trying to manage two boy bands. <laughs> I have two boy bands at the school on top of my lessons. And I'm trying to, you know, figure out how to manage all of this. And so that boy band, they wanted to sing a song, sing songs too. They were, you know, more teenagery and a little bit more concerned about their appearance and things like that. So we couldn't put them on the first performance, but we did get the first group ready. And, you know, we have had dress rehearsals and now this is becoming like Saturdays and Sundays. We're practicing. Parents are now involved in there because they're like, what are you doing spending all this time at the school with this American girl who appeared from out of nowhere? early in the morning and all of a sudden everybody has stage fright. I said, guys, we have been practicing this over and over again. You guys know this like the back of your hand because a lot of what I was doing, even, even as an ETA, working with the students um, that I you know, had was building confidence. They didn't have the confidence to speak and to just uh, believe that they did know what they were saying and like what they were saying was good. So all of a sudden, my boys who you know have been so great all of this time have stage fright. So now I'm like, okay, motivational prep talk. I'm, I'm like the stage mom, the stage manager, Manager, the choreographer, the everything, trying to get them, get them ready for the performance. So the performance comes, and they just sung their hearts out. They they had microphones that weren't really picking up their voices that well, so they were sort of like yelling to the audience, and it was the proudest moment. I cried. I was so happy just to see, just to see the growth. And I think we put this together in maybe like a month and a half, like two months or something like that, and just to see that they had like done it. They got up there and they just sang and they they did all the choreography that they was they were supposed to do and and the 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 other students. So the entire this is in front of the entire school. So it was a lot of pressure, you know, as a 12-year-old and so the rest of the school is yelling and they're clapping and everybody's so happy and next thing you know I want to be in the boy band. I want to be in the boy band. Oh, can we start a girls band? It's not fair. We need a girls girls group too. So can we start a girls group? And now everybody wants to be a performer. And they, it was just so great to see their development. And so my boy, oh, my boy group, they were they were so great. And. And they, I think they really did learn from that opportunity that who says you can't? Who says that you can't be a boy band? I say you can. So let's, if that's what you want to do, let's do it. So that was awesome.
in Malaysia, I was teaching. I was in a certain position of power. I was, you know, I had a, a lot of leverage that I could use to do certain things. In Indonesia, I was a student. So I was back in a university setting. I had teachers. I was in a, I had other students that I was working with. And this was all to learn Bahasa Indonesian, which <laughs> at the time I knew nothing because I had spent all of this time in Malaysia. And I used it sort of as my trick to teach English. It was like, oh, if the students would try to speak to me in Bahasa. So Bahasa Malayu and Bahasa Indonesian are very similar languages. And so my students would say something. I said, oh, nope, can't understand you. Have to speak English, you know. But that meant that when I left my school or out of that environment, I would go somewhere and I'm like, oh, I can't speak the language. I have no idea what people are saying to me. So that's what encouraged me to do the critical language scholarship and um, go learn Bahasa in Indonesia. You know, they give you your host family questionnaire to decide to, to tell them your preferences and things. And so I put a family with lots of kids and, you know, who are very active and things like that, because that's the type of thing I like. I have a lot of energy. I want to share that with people. And so I got to Indonesia and they, they took me to my host family and I was placed with a lovely couple that was, I believe at the time, 84. Five and 86, 83, 85, in their 80s. So a lovely couple. And all of a sudden I said, oh my goodness, I am going to be living in this house for two months with this older couple. What in the world are we going to do? Because that just wasn't what I was expecting. I loved living with them. They were they were my Indonesian grandparents. And the year prior to that, I had actually lost my grandfather. So to be in a place where all of a sudden I have like these two Indonesian grandparents that I never thought I would have, it, it was sort of mind blowing. And it just showed me that all of these things in my life are sort of organizing themselves for a purpose. And so I got, <laughs> I ended up being in the house with them. And you know, the first day was really awkward because remember I couldn't speak any Bahasa. So, and they were speaking Bahasa and I was just like, I don't know what they're saying. So we're just gonna sit here and I'll smile and it'll be okay. So we eventually like started to get to know each other and they had meals every day at seven, one and seven. So that was the time you ate. There was no eating in the house outside of those times. And those moments of being able to have breakfast with them and have and have dinner with them. I usually had lunch at school. They were so warm and welcoming and treated me like I was their granddaughter. Like I was not some person who just kind of got off a plane and came to Indonesia and will be here for two months and then will be leaving. They were so invested in like my my learning and education. So we would have our lessons at the table and the grandmother would or repeat the same words to me over and over again. And then I would try to repeat them back, but then I never said them good enough for her. She's like, no, 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 you, you need so much more work. And I said, I know I'm going to go back to class, you know, we'll work on it. But then when I I would take my test and I would pass my test. I would show it to them and they would be really excited. And they they really wanted to know more about me. They said they had ho they had been hosting students since 
some of the original State Department programs that used to take people to Indonesia. For at least 30 years, they've been hosting American students. And they said for the first time, this was one of the first times that they had met someone who was African-American, who was just seemed to be a little bit different. Like, I was very passionate and very um, excited. And my personality, I think, is just very... I'm so happy to be here and I'm so happy you're here with me. And so let's just have a like a great time. And so they, they said that I was just so nice and warm. And all I could say was, you are so nice and warm. You make me be this way because living here with you is is amazing. And I never, I never thought, I literally never thought that it would be like that because I said, oh no, there's not even any kids that I can kind of like distract my time with and sort of play with them instead of like actually having to practice my language skills, you know, with adults and have conversations. Um, But we used to talk about everything. They would ask me about things that were happening here in the States. I would ask them about different, you know, social issues and things happening um, in Indonesia. And they would just tell me about they had such a wealth of wisdom. And that also was very impactful for me because I am young and growing and trying to, you know, learn more about this region and these different cultures and things like that. It was different. They were just so warm and welcoming and they really taught me that I want to be that way too. It had an internal, it changed the way that I thought about welcoming people into my home and the way that I thought about what it's like to really share my life with someone else. So, yeah, I think that had a, it was a, it was a big impact. They were great. <laughs> my Indonesian grandparents. <laughs> At the same time that I felt welcomed and loved and like a really a part of these different communities, I also was constantly trying to navigate my identity as an American, what it's like to be an African-American in an American context, what it's like to be an African-American woman in an American context, and then what it's like to be these things in a Malaysian context or in an Indonesian context. And my identities sort of were going haywire all of the time because I'm, I would be in, in my school in Malaysia where, you know, I I remember my first um, month that I was actually in school, it was February. So it was Black History Month. And I said, great, we're doing Black History Month. First, first thing out. And, And that was also me coming from a space of Well, yeah, as a girl from Detroit who, you know, has lived in these different cities, went to Spelman College at HBCU in Atlanta. Everybody talks about Black History Month. That is what I know. And so my first tactic was to just share what I know as I sort of figure this out. But my students in Malaysia, in rural Kadath, have never heard, had had never really heard the name Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., had never heard Malcolm X, or had no concept. So it actually showed me, oh, wait, I'm going to have to break this down a lot further because they see me as an, just an American. And why am I teaching about this? So how, how did this happen? Why? They're asking me questions. Why? What, why, what was civil rights? Why did you need civil rights in America? America is, is great. And this is the perspective of my students who only sort of knew one narrative about America. And so that was a challenge. But then, so I would leave that space where I'm very much seen as an American, but then I would go into, you know, a mid-year meeting or I would go into a, a setting with my majority of my cohort 
And this was in, you know, in 2015 at the height of a lot of Black Lives Matter initiatives. And there were things happening here in the United States that were really affecting me and a lot of the other um, students of color in the cohort. All of a sudden, our experience was sort of marginalized and we didn't know how to navigate it. Thank goodness the commission in Malaysia was great and, you know, always made us, helped us feel supported and gave us the resources that we needed. I could see the confusion on people's faces when I first arrived in my in my placement. They're like, okay, she says she's from America, but she definitely is not white with blonde hair and blue eyes. And and she said, but she kind of looks like she's Thai. So maybe she's from Thailand. <laughs> like that's actually probably what she is. And I could see people staring at me. I remember I went to a 7-Eleven like a few weeks in and the girl I was trying to pay, but she wouldn't take my money because she was staring at me. And I said, can you please just take my money because I want to buy this ice cream because I'm homesick and I need to eat this. And so, but she was just so sort of confused by that. I came back from Malaysia and Indonesia with a much stronger sense of my identity. Things that I never had to think about all of a sudden were at the forefront of my mind. I was prepared to deal with the unexpected from the country because it's like, well, of course, it's Malaysia. I don't know much about Malaysia. I don't know what's going to happen. But I didn't think about what it would be like to be in that space with other American students. Mm -hmm. As an African-American, I learned that as an American, despite the challenges that the African-American experience presents in the United States, I still have an unimaginable level of privilege that I can take with me as an American. And that is what comes off. That in some situations as a foreigner in a place like Malaysia and in Indonesia, that is what is going to be seen first, no matter how I see myself here in the States or no matter how I hold, you know, the challenges and the need to appreciate the work that my ancestors and my family and people have done and to create a space for me to be able to take advantage of these opportunities. That is something that I hold very close to me personally here in the United States, but there I'm still an American and people who don't understand the African or who have never had to try to understand the African-American experience, it's hard to understand that. It's hard to explain that to other people. So sometimes I would find myself talking to my students and feeling like, well, I can't actually really share who I am with you all because there is a difference here. And they see me as an American. And that was hard for me to sort of navigate myself and to try to figure out, well, how do I share these very important parts of my culture and who I am with people and in a situation where I'm American? That's it. <laughs> there is nothing else to that. You're American. You, 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 get, so you get the things that come with that and, you know. 
my experience is not going to be the same as anybody else's experience. That was the first thing that they tell you in orientation. Well, it depends. So any question that you ask, it it depends on, you know, the situation. What happens to me may not happen for you. But I think being able to recognize that does impact how I navigate certain situations here in the United States because I do know what it feels like to have privilege. So that means I can relate. I that I can relate to somebody who has a certain level of privilege here in the United States that I maybe don't have, but I get how that feels. I still can understand and it's hard to to change that to sort of shift that mindset, but I understand and I think for the the what you have to do is at least find some place of common understanding. So if I can try to understand and you can try to understand, okay, now we can talk, now we can dialogue, now we can move forward. So that helps. When I went to Malaysia, I started a multicultural club for some of my students. And those students um, were the ones who volunteered to come in again, be on a journey with me because I didn't know what this was going to be. And we started off, I was going to teach them about, you know, the different cultures of different countries. They were going to do research projects and, and presentations to learn about different countries. So they were assigned to like Brazil and Italy and places like that. And then one day in conversation, I realized... My student, they didn't actually know much about the richness of Malaysian culture. I was in a 99% ethnic, ethnic Malay school and community. So all of my students, for the most part, were Muslim. And again, it was a rural environment. And so they didn't necessarily know about the different indigenous groups or the just the richness of the, of the culture. And so I said, well, we should learn about that instead. Let's let's study that. And so we started doing projects and things related to that. That eventually snowballed into a cultural exchange trip for this like 17 students that I had. And oh boy, it was a journey because all of a sudden it went from an after school project to now I'm trying to raise money and I'm trying to get, figure out a way to take stu- students on a trip somewhere. I think I called it discovering cultures in your own backyard, cultural exchange trip. And I took them from Sitkada to Kotakana. Balu Sabah, which is on the Borneo side of Malaysia. So about a two-hour plane ride. This was most of their first time on a plane. This was some of their first time out of the state. And for some, the first time sort of out of our small village. And so it was amazing. I took the, I, We took them on this trip. They ended up going. I did an English camp. I partnered with a local school there where they were students who had similar interests, similar age, but were from a mix of different backgrounds and different ethnic groups and different religions. And so they were able to sort of interact with each other. And the point was to show we are not as different as we sometimes like to think we are. These are students. And then at the end, they're on Messenger together and they're, you know, planning things together. I said, see, you guys are all 16 year olds but you thought that originally people living on this other side of you know the country are you know very very different and things like that and so they did a service learning project and they volunteered we they got to meet other English teaching assistants which I thought was great because my students you know have been used to me and which is you know I am I do not represent all of America so I want you guys to meet other people learn about them and learn about their stories and it was the hardest thing I've ever done I First of all, I couldn't believe that the parents were like entrusting me to take their children on this trip. I said, y'all, I don't 
even know how. You guys are, but they say, yeah, we think this is a great idea. You should totally do it. I said, okay. And then the raising the money, I thank goodness was able to get um, a small grant from the embassy in Malaysia um, through the State Department that helped me to offset the funding, some of the funding. So they, the trip was fully paid for for the students. And they also, they entrepreneurial skills, they had to fundraise and we had projects and they had to sell things and um, things like that. And I also had... Um, the, the one gas station in our town, I asked for a sponsorship. I was chasing the man down the street in his car because I knew where he lived, but I couldn't get in contact with him. And I said, can, can you please read my letter? Can you know, this is what I'm trying to do. And so he gave, he supported and different government um, agencies supported. And so I just felt like I had this huge support of people who believed in this project and the project was a huge success. So coming back to the States, I went back to American. I changed my concentration from like international development to like youth conflict and development. I started focusing more on international education. And so now what I really am focusing on is trying to figure out how to make these opportunities available for more students, cultural exchange experiences, whether it, and of course, I personally believe in, you know, international exchange, international education, but also a lot of these same principles can be applied within the United States and within places where there are cultural differences and there is, their dialogue needs to happen. And that is how you create a better understanding between individuals and create those people-to-people -people connections that make people feel connected and like they can understand the, uh, the other, someone else's story, which I believe is the, the key to solving a lot of our, a lot of our problems. The things that I took away are much more intangible. So it's the, again, the kindness that I want to show to people. I want to show the same kindness to others that they show to me. I was completely welcomed into families and villages and communities as someone who dropped from literally out of nowhere. <laughs> like people, and it's funny because there was a lot of uh, sort of adjusting because I was not when I was in Malaysia and in and in Indonesia and to some extent I was not what people expected I especially if your idea of America is maybe coming from the media so here I am an African-American girl w who but then has like fair skin and looks maybe a little bit different and so people just did not know what to expect but yet they still like fully accepted me and allowed me to I, I went to so many family celebrations and I went to weddings and was a part of so much uh, one of my favorite experiences was celebrating um, Hari Raya in Malaysia which is the end of of, uh, the fasting month of Ramadan. Um, yeah, I went to like six different houses and just ate all day with people who were so happy that I was there. They they were so happy to share their traditions with me. I had um, a traditional baju karong, which is the attire that people in Malaysia, women in Malaysia wear. Um, I had one made. And so everybody, of course, was it's sort of like a fashion show. You want to see what everyone's wearing. What colors is this family wearing? What are they going to wear? And so 
I did I did all of that and I fully participated in all of these traditions that have sort of lasted for so long in people's lives and generation and it's what they do all the time but and then they welcomed me into it and so I think about that a lot now how to be welcoming and inclusive and make people feel warm and and know that, yeah, you are a girl from America and we are families in Malaysia or Malang, Indonesia, but we we want to get to know you and you you matter to us and you and they matter to me. And just being able to share that, I think, is something that I try to hold with me and also share here in the United States with others. So. I just really loved the experience to to be unapologetically me. I I am what what you get. <laughs> so even at my school, you may have expected something a little different or maybe, you know, there were stereotypes things like that, but hey, here I am. I I am here and I am excited and this is this is going to be so much fun. So let's just have fun. And even in Indonesia, it was I don't know Bahasa with my husband. I, I really don't know, but I'm going to really try hard and I'm going to learn as much as I can. And we're going to, I'm going to try to have conversations and it's going to be great. And so I think that recognizing that and sort of holding on to that, that I am me and I am special for, for whatever reason. And I have a story to tell that matters and that it's it's worth sharing. The reasons that I have been able to participate in these programs is because I, I do have something that I want to share and my culture is important. And so being able to be just sort of unapologetically Cheyenne and share who I am, I think helped me build the connections that I know now will last a lifetime. So with the other teachers, I would say, hey, you know, I really am not a teacher, but you are, and I'm really excited. And so let's figure out how to do this together <laughs> sort of thing. Um, yeah, so I really enjoyed that. And I think you you sometimes think about going abroad as you're going into this place that's so different. And it is different and it is very challenging. But then at the same time, it makes you focus on you and who are you in the world and what do you want to put out into the world? And so I really, I really embraced that. And I think that helped make all of these opportunities so life-changing because they really did change my life. And the people that I have met are now like a part of this family that I have in Southeast Asia. Twenty two thirty three is produced by the Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name is Christopher Worst. I'm the director of the Collaboratory. Twenty two thirty three is named for Title Twenty two, Chapter Thirty three of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government funded international exchange programs. This week, Cheyenne Boyce told us about her participation in two ECA programs as a Fulbright English teaching assistant in Malaysia and a critical languages scholar in Indonesia. For more about these and other ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We also encourage you to subscribe to 2233. Of course, you can do that wherever you find your podcasts. And since you're in the neighborhood, why don't you leave us a review while you're there, huh? 
We'd also love to hear from you. You can write to us at ECA Collaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. And did you know, photos of each week's interviewee and complete episode transcripts can be found on our webpage at eca.state.gov slash 2233. Very special thanks to Cheyenne for her wonderful stories. I did the interview and edited this episode. Featured music was Begrudge, Down by the Bank, Stakes and Things, and Contrarian, all by Blue Dot Sessions. To Meet Again by Lobo Loco. And of course, actual audio of Cheyenne's amazing boy band. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came. And the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagirlius. Until next time.